All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be. If you are new to the Bible, then you can do a couple things. You can either go to the front and look at the table of contents and then just get the page number or go to the back half of the Bible and what we call the New Testament, and you'll find the book of Acts somewhere there. Uh, So if you're new to Frontline, one of the things that we love to do as a church is we love to take entire books of the Bible and then preach our way through those books of the Bible. We like to go just chapter by chapter all the way through the Bible. And recently we picked up a new book of the Bible, the book of Acts. And we're just going to be going through this book for the better part of 2016, probably going into 2017 with a few key breaks here and there. And we're just absolutely love this book. We're so excited to be inside of this book. And if, if you've missed some of the weeks or you're just showing up, then let me just kind of unpack where we are and where, where we're going, what the big idea of the book of Acts is. The big idea of this book is that when Jesus died on a cross and then when he rose from the dead, he didn't just disappear. He didn't slip away on vacation where he's just disengaged and disconnected from his church. That when Jesus died and rose again, he ascended into heaven where he reigns and rules right now while we're talking. He reigns and rules in in heaven and he's not done with his mission. In fact, he's continuing his work. He's continuing his mission through his church, through you and I, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus isn't disconnected. He's not disengaged. He's actively doing his mission through his church. That's the big idea. And in the face of suffering and in the face of opposition and in the face of a a, a culture that wants nothing to do with Jesus, none of those things are actually standing in the way of God's kingdom advancing and his mission moving forward. So where we are in the story, if you're you're kind of wondering where are we at timeline-wise in the story, well, Jesus had died on a cross on a Friday day. And then after he had died, he rose from the dead on a Sunday, right? Rose from the dead. And then what he did is he spent 40 days with his disciples. He spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom and unpacking what he was going to be doing in the world through them. And then at, at the end of that 40 days, he does something really bizarre. He, he gathers his disciples together in Acts chapter 1, and he says, all right, here's what's going to happen. You are going to become my witnesses. You're going to take this, this good news of who I am, this good news that I died for your sin, that I rose again, and that I'm, I'm king now. You're going to take this good news, and you're going to go into all the world. You're going to start in your city, the city of Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to Judea and then Samaria, and then you're going to go even to the very ends, the very stretches of the earth with this beautiful news as my witnesses. And then right after he says that, here's what happens. I'll just read it in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. Isn't that a really weird way for this story to kick off? Jesus is like, all right, you're going you're gonna to be my witnesses, but before you go out on mission, I want you to wait in the city, and I'm going to give you power. And then while he's talking to them, he just kind of floats away, a lot like a, a child's balloon. If you've ever seen a kid lose a balloon, it's like they're just watching Jesus float away. And, and if you put yourself in their shoes, it's like, where is he going? What is he doing? Why is Jesus, it, why is he going up into the sky? 
And what we find out is that where Jesus is going is he's going to his throne in heaven where he was going to sit at the right hand of God the Father and he was going to be given authority and power over all things, including his church. But for, here, here's, what I, here's what I want to unpack with you for just a little bit. The, the sad reality is that for many Christians, that's kind of where the story stops, right? That's kind of where for us, we just kind of close the story. So if, if we think of the story of what Jesus has done, we have his life, death, and resurrection on one end. And then we have his final return on the other end. We know that one day he's going to come back, but we're not really sure what, what is in the middle. And we're not really sure what we're exactly supposed to do in this middle period between the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and his final return. And actually, this is the book of Acts. It's unpacking what exists inside of the middle where you and I live and where you and I breathe. You and I live in between Jesus's resurrection and the time that he's gonna come back and specifically what's gonna happen in Acts chapter two at Pentecost is gonna dramatically change the way that you and I envision our role as we live in this world between Jesus's resurrection and the time that he comes back. What we're going to see happen in Acts 2 is that the Holy Spirit is going to come in a powerful, powerful way, and it's going to change everything. But for many of us, we, we actually close the story down before we get there. So let me just read one theologian, Andrew Wilson. He says this, and I found this really helpful. I've been guilty of this. He says, Luke would be astonished that anyone could talk about Christianity without mentioning the Holy Spirit. And he would explain in detail how Pentecost changed everything. Acts 2 changed everything. Paul would go further, the Apostle Paul, and remind us that people without the Holy Spirit didn't even belong to Christ, Romans 8, 9. To the apostles and to Jesus, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit would represent one of the high points of the entire story, the bit that quite literally everybody was waiting for. So here's what I want to do in the short time that I have with you. I just want to give you two major things that happen at Pentecost and show you what that means for you and I today. There are so many things that we could look at. There are so many uh, different Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. There's, there's just a beautiful treasure that we could jump into. But I just want to give you two things of what happens at Acts chapter 2 that has dramatic effects on the way that you and I live between the time that Jesus died and rose again and the time that he returns. So let me just jump in with you. Acts chapter 2. Let's look at it together. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, who is all together in one place? This is uh, 120 believers. So the early, early church, right? Again, this is about 50 days now after the time that Jesus had died and risen from the dead. This is about 50 days after that. There's 120 people gathered together in a house in the city of Jerusalem right outside the temple. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together. So they all heard this sound. They were drawn to the sound. They all came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse seven, and they were amazed and astonished saying, are are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Asia, Fergi, I'm sorry, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Fergi and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine, right? So just paint this picture in your head. You've got 120 people and something dramatic happens and all of these people are filled with the spirit. All of these other Jews living in the area are drawn to the scene. They wanna see what's going on. And all of a sudden they look at these guys that they know to be Galileans and they hear them speaking in their own language, right? Really, really bizarre. So they're, they're curious, what on earth does this mean? Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, Peter's like, it's only nine in the morning, guys. We're all drinking coffee right now. Nobody's hammered drunk, right? Verse 16 But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, here's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say that there's something in the Old Testament that was promised, and that thing that was promised, that's what's happening right now. So look at what he says in verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On your sons and your daughters, they will prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what is happening in this passage that is so weighty, that is so significant, that actually even stretches into 2016 and changes the way that you and I live between the time that Jesus died and rose again and the time that he comes back? Well, again, I just want to give you two things. So if you're taking notes, here's the first thing that I want you to see, that at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, God's presence, his presence moves from places to people. What do I mean by that? God's presence moves from places to people. Well, a couple things. In the Old Testament, what we see happening is we see the Spirit of God dwelling on only particular people, people like prophets and kings. In other words, really, really important, notable people inside of the kingdom of God. Those were the people that had this this measure of the Holy Spirit's activity in their lives and on their lives. So, 
prophets and kings. And then the other thing we see in the Old Testament is that God's presence is kind of in a really special way dwelling in special places. Uh, Some of you are like, yeah, but isn't God present everywhere? I mean, what about all those omnis that we've heard about? He's, He's omnipresent. Isn't he present in all places at all times? How could his presence be especially in one place if he's present everywhere? Well, the reality is that, yes, God is present at all times in all places, but he chooses to kind of allow his presence to dwell in a really dramatic, special way in really unique places throughout the Old Testament. So we could go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the presence of God dwelling in the Garden of Eden. So you have Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden. And it wasn't that God wasn't anywhere else on the face of the earth, but his presence was uniquely in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve would walk with God and commune with God. And you and I know how that story ends. We know that by the time you get to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have sinned and they've rebelled and they've basically pushed God off of his throne and they've attempted to be their own God and do their own thing and kind of pursue pleasure and identity and, and joy outside of God. And if you keep reading in Genesis 3, what we find out is that God, in response, he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. And here's what's so crazy about that. He's not just kicking them out of paradise. When he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, what is he doing? He's literally kicking them out of his presence because his presence dwelt in a special way in the Garden of Eden. When you get to the book of Exodus, you see a man named Moses and he's walking around out in the wilderness and all of a sudden he stumbles across a burning bush. What's weird about the burning bush is that it appears to be on fire, but it's not actually being consumed. It's not burning up. And then all of a sudden Moses realizes that he's in the presence of God. God's presence was dwelling in a special way in that burning bush. He even takes his shoes off and he says, I'm standing on holy ground. What that means is that if he, were to, if he were to go somewhere over here, he wouldn't have been on holy ground. But, but as he got closer to the burning bush, he was standing in the very presence of God. When you get to the very end of Exodus, we see God choosing to dwell in a special way in something called the tabernacle. It's just this giant tent where sacrifices for sins would be made and God would come down in a, in a consuming fire and he would dwell inside of the tabernacle, right? And then if you fast forward, you get to Second uh, Samuel. And in Second Samuel, you see the presence of God dwelling in the Ark of the Covenant, Right, So his presence is there inside of this Ark of the Covenant. As you would get close to the Ark of the Covenant, you were encountering and experiencing God himself, the very presence of God. And then finally, once you get to 1 Kings, what we see happening in 1 Kings is that the tabernacle is replaced with something called the temple, and God's presence would dwell in a very powerful, special way inside of the temple. Right? So, Here's the big idea with all of this. The big idea was if if you and I were a Jewish uh, man or woman living in the time of the Old Testament, we might have a conversation that goes something like this. Hey, were you ever to, did, did you get to encounter the presence of God today? No, I wasn't able to. I didn't get to make my way to the temple. Were you able to? Yeah, I actually did. I got to taste and experience the power and presence of God because I was able to make my way to the temple. Right now, here's the burden of all of this. The burden is that to experience the presence of God, what would you have to do? 
Well, you'd have to go to a particular place. You'd have to take a journey. And if you were a foreigner, if you lived far from the temple, you'd have to to take a really unsafe, rigorous trip and try to make your way to the temple just so that you could encounter and experience the presence of God. Well, what's happening in Acts chapter 2? There's a massive shift. Let me show you again. Look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Notice it's, it's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't this rushing wind. It wasn't a tornado that blew through. It was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Verse 3 and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Again, this is not real fire. Otherwise, these dudes' heads would be on fire, right? Not cool. This is like something that appears to be fire resting on each one of them. What's happening here? Well, then we get a more clear explanation in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You see, in Acts 2, the dramatic shift is that God's presence goes from dwelling in particular places to now dwelling with people. And listen, not just with people, but Acts 2 tells us that God now chooses to graciously dwell inside of people. Can you just wrap your mind and your heart around that for a minute? If you're a follower of Jesus, whether you feel like this is true or not, the very presence of God that at one time dwelt in the Garden of Eden, at one time was in the tabernacle and the temple and the Ark of of the Covenant, now lives inside of you. This is so huge and massive. It changes everything. He's no longer dwelling in places. He's now dwelling inside of his people. Jesus from heaven, he pours out his Holy Spirit. And by the way, that wind sound that they heard over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that wind sound or or wind in itself was a reference or a symbol for God, the Holy Spirit. The fire that was hanging over their heads and the old covenant in the Old Testament, it was fire that would come and fill the tabernacle. And now this something that looks like fire is on each one of them. And what is that showing? Saying God's presence is now dwelling inside of you. Jesus from heaven has poured out his spirit. And you and I who are followers of Jesus now have the very presence of God inside of us. Now, that means a lot of things for us today, but let me just give you three of them. Here's the first one. The the people in the Old Testament, they actually couldn't step into the presence of God without making a sacrifice for sins. Why? Well, because we are broken and sinful and God is a holy God. And so if we were to just walk up to his presence, if we were to just walk into the temple uh, without a sacrifice for our sin to cover our shame and our brokenness, then what would happen is that we would be consumed by this God, right? So what happens in the Old Testament is to go to the presence of God, there had to be, there had to be a sacrifice that was made so that you could actually enter in and be forgiven and loved and not consumed. Well, what's happening now, because of the work of Jesus, Jesus is saying, on the cross, when I died, 
when I took your sin and I took your shame and I took your guilt and I took all those things that you are entangled in and all of the brokenness that exists in you, I took that on myself on the cross and I was the sacrifice for your sins. Because of Jesus's work, you and I have been forgiven and and all of the sin that we've committed, Jesus died so that we might be loved and adopted into his family as sons and daughters. And now there, there no longer has to be a sacrifice that we make, but now God graciously comes to us and he dwells inside of us because we are clean because of the work of Jesus. Here's the second thing that it means is that God no longer dwells in really special people, right? And what I mean is he no longer dwells in really special people exclusively. Remember in the Old Testament, it was like you might have the Holy Spirit living in you and working in you in a powerful way if you are a prophet or a king. But if you're just an average person, if you're not a prophet, if you're not a king, or if you are uh, some, you know, young or old, or if you're a, a servant, or if you are a woman or a man that isn't going to become a prophet one day, then sorry, you're just out of luck. You're not going to have the presence of God dwelling with you in a really dramatic way. Well, look at what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on who? On all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. See, what God is saying in in Acts 2 is, listen, it's no longer this exclusive thing that that all flesh, anyone, if you're broken and you feel like, like you don't deserve it and maybe you're not eligible, those are the people that Jesus came for. And so because of the work of Jesus, all people, not just certain special people, all people can be filled with the presence of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the third thing that it means, and this is huge. In order for the people in the Old Testament to encounter the presence of God, they had to go to the temple. So think about all those people that didn't know God but wanted to know or were curious about God. They'd have to take that trek. But now what's happening in Acts 2 is is rather than people having to come to a particular place to experience the presence of God, rather than them having to take a journey, what now happens is Jesus says in chapter 1, You are going to be my witnesses when I fill you with the Holy Spirit and you will have the presence of God living inside of you. Now you go into all the world and tell people about me. You go into the the edges of the world so that people who are far from me can experience and encounter my presence. So here's what that means. What that means is that this thing that we call Christianity is not primarily a come and see type of deal. It's primarily a go and tell type of deal, right? Our our job is not just to sit around waiting for people to start getting curious about Jesus. Our job is actually to go to them because the very presence of God resides in us and we're to actually go into our city with the presence of God in us and the gospel in our mouths. This is what happens in the shift in Acts 2. Here's the second thing I want you to see in this chapter, and this is so, so massive. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus baptizes his church with the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus baptizes his church with the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? Well, look in Acts chapter one with me. Look at verse four. Flip back. Here's what it says in verse four. Jesus says, and while staying with them, his disciples, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that's Jesus in chapter one. He says, in a few days, you're gonna be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the idea behind baptism, right? Baptism is, is where we take people and we, we dunk them completely underwater and we raise them back up. It's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. They, they turn from their sin and they trust in Jesus. And as a, a proclamation to everybody that they're now following Jesus, we baptize those people. So when someone is baptized in the Holy Spirit, what's happening there is that actually the Spirit of God is completely completely filling them, completely immersing them, completely saturating every part of their lives. Now, why does that matter? Well, here's why this matters, that if you go back to the book of Luke, which uh, again is written by the same guy who wrote Acts, right? So Acts is part two and Luke is part one. If you go back to the book of Luke, you can watch the life and ministry of Jesus unfold and something beautiful happens in Luke chapter four at Jesus's baptism. Do you remember what it is? Jesus, he's baptized. He goes under the water and he's raised back up from the water. And at that point, the heavens are torn open. And God, the father from heaven, he speaks and he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then all of a sudden at that moment, this, the, the spirit of God descends from heaven and rests on Jesus. It, it looked like a dove coming down from heaven. The spirit of God dwells and rests on Jesus and something huge happens. Jesus, who had lived 30 years and never done any ministry, never preached a sermon, never healed anyone who is sick, never cast out a demon, never raised anybody from the dead, hadn't done any sort of miracles, hadn't even started his earthly public ministry. Jesus, at his baptism, when he's filled with the Spirit of God, Jesus kicks off and launches his public ministry. And so in Luke 4 and in Luke 5 and on throughout the rest of the book, we see Jesus having the Holy Spirit in fullness and then going out and starting to do miracles and, and starting to heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead. And, 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 and Jesus is, is doing his ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're like me, you're like, well, why does Jesus, who is God, need the Holy Spirit. I mean, doesn't that feel a little bit counterintuitive? He's God. I don't know if he needs anything, right? Well, here's what happens when Jesus comes to this earth. A lot of times we think of Jesus as kind of like the Clark Kent, right? You know, Clark Kent looks kind of like a, a normal average guy. He's a little bit clumsy, right? But he looks like a normal guy. He's got the, you know, hair swoop and the glasses. Nobody can tell that really what's going on is that he is who? He's, he's Superman, right? So he looks like just a, a dude, a normal guy. But if you were to shoot Clark Kent with a gun, what would happen? Nothing. He would dominate you, all right? Because he is Superman. He's not really a man. He's actually an alien. Sorry if that ruins the whole story for you, right? 
Well, that's oftentimes how you and I think of Jesus. We think of Jesus as like Clark Kent. Oh, he looks like a man. He's kind of wrapped in human skin, but you know, he's not really a man. He's really God. And the way that he did all those really cool miracles and the way that he healed sick people and the way that he resisted temptation and the way that he suffered fully trusting in God, the way that he did the things that Jesus did, he did because he was God. Well, actually, that's not true. Philippians 2 tells us this, that when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't cease to be God. So he's still God, right? He didn't cease to be God. But when Jesus came to this earth, rather than living out of his divinity, rather than living out of of him being God, he chose to, to lay aside his rights to his divinity and live out of his humanity. But he lived out of his humanity in the fullness and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what that means is that as you watch Jesus loving people that hate his guts, he's not doing it just because he's God. He's doing it because he is living as a man in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. When you see Jesus praying for people who are sick and those people get healed, he's not doing it just because he's God. He is God, but he was doing it as a man in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. And on and on and on, we could go down his ministry, but Jesus does his mission as a man in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. And it all started where? Jesus' baptism. Well, do you remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1? He says, hey, he gathers his disciples together. Hey, I want you to take the gospel into the whole world. I want you to start in your city of Jerusalem. And then you're going to go from there to Judea. Then you're going to go to Samaria, then to the the very ends of the earth. But wait, don't go yet. Before you go out, I want to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So Luke is intentionally writing so that we might see as we read Luke, the gospel of Luke, and see Jesus not doing ministry. And then the Spirit comes on Jesus at his baptism and he does ministry. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Hey, don't go yet. And then I'm going to clothe you with power and authority from on high and then go and then start doing ministry and follow me on my mission. So what does this mean for us? Well, here's what it means. The result of being filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens in this passage, the result of it is first proclamation proclamation. Isn't it interesting that the very first thing that we see these spirit-filled believers doing is speaking? In fact, the very first thing that we see them doing is speaking in tongues. What's that all about? Well, we don't have time to get into a whole big discussion about tongues, but let me at least take this passage and explain what's happening here. Look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. That, that word in the Greek literally means languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then you see in verse 5 that there are all these people dwelling in Jerusalem. And then if you keep reading, we see that, that they were amazed because they were all hearing. They were all hearing in their own languages. What's happening here? Well, this, this is so beautiful. This is the reversal of Babel in Genesis 11. 
If you don't know much about the story of Babel, let me just quickly give you the, the 22nd version, right? In Genesis 11, everybody on the known world spoke the same language. They came together to build this giant city and this giant tower of Babel in pride so that they could kind of reach up to the heavens and, and say, we don't need you, God. We can do this without you. Look at how great and powerful we are. Who needs you anyway? And God, in his judgment to to their pride, what he does is he scatters these people all over the world and he, he messes up all their languages and gives everybody different languages. And so now you have all these people in all different parts of the world that don't speak the same language. And here's the tragedy in that. The tragedy is that now they can't hear about God in their own language. Well, what's happening here? In, in Acts, this is the reversal of Babel. I love what uh, Dr. Sam Storm says. He says, Pentecost is the reversal of Babel. At Babel, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered. But at Pentecost, the language barrier was overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered in Christ. At Babel, earth proudly, tr- proudly tried to ascend to heaven. At Pentecost, Heaven humbly descended to earth. So the first thing that happens is they're filled with the Spirit and they stand up and they start proclaiming. What are they proclaiming? It says in Acts chapter 2, says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And then the second thing that we see happening later on is that the apostle Peter, he stands up and what does Peter do? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he proclaims, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus, the one that you killed, he's now alive and he reigns and he rules and he's in heaven right now. And this thing that happened with with the sound and the wind, that was the spirit being poured out by Jesus because he's on a throne in heaven. Peter proclaims who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You see, the reason that God gave us the Holy Spirit was so that you and I, as followers of Jesus, could proclaim the gospel. We are filled with the Spirit. We're given this gift, not so that we can just hang out inside of a room and enjoy the benefits of that, although it's beautiful to enjoy the benefits of it. We are called, actually, to be witnesses of this Jesus and take the truth about who he is and proclaim it to people that don't know him. So if you're a follower of Jesus, it's actually not the pastor's or the missionary's job to go into the world. It's actually every follower of Jesus that is called and invited by Jesus into this great mission. So one of the results of this spirit coming in power is proclamation. Here's the second thing, the second result of the spirit coming in power, and that's power itself. Power itself. I love this. As the rest of the book of Acts unfolds, what we're going to see happen is that the disciples, they start doing things that look eerily similar to who? Well, Jesus, right? The things that they're doing, it's like, hey, that looked a lot like what Jesus did. Let me just give you a quick rundown. In Acts 2, we see the disciples given the power to be generous with their, with their possessions and with their belongings. They start sharing their stuff and giving away their possessions so that those who lack wouldn't lack anymore and they'd have what they need. That's a spirit-empowered thing to, to have happen. In Acts chapter 3, we see a man who can't walk being healed. 
Now, we've read these stories and thought, well, they were special. Well, it's not that they're special because the whole point of Acts 2 is that now all followers of Jesus get the Holy Spirit like this. In Acts chapter 5, we read about many signs and wonders being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. In Acts chapter 5 at the end, we see the apostles joyfully enduring physical suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel. How can they do that? How can they, and how can they joyfully withstand the, the rejection of their culture and physical persecution? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, we see Peter heal a paralyzed man. And then right after that, we see Peter raise a woman named Tabitha from the dead. How crazy is this? Now we've read Acts and we thought that's bizarre. Like this stuff doesn't happen. But the whole point, again, I want to keep reminding you, the whole point is that Jesus has done something for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And now that he reigns in heaven as God, he's poured out the Holy Spirit on us so that we can join him and do ministry and the power of the Spirit just like Jesus. Finally, one more in Acts 13. We could go on and on through the whole book. In Acts 13, we see the apostle Paul, by the power of the Spirit, he actually causes a man to go blind who is opposing the advancement of the gospel. Here's the point. The point is there is something very supernatural about this early church. There is something about this early church that people would say, man, this isn't just them. This isn't something that they're pulling off in their own giftedness and in their own ability. There's something supernatural about this. And the reason why is because it's the spirit of God who has empowered these people to carry out his ministry and mission on planet earth. It's God giving them the ability to proclaim the gospel, but also power to live in light of the gospel. And then finally, the last thing that this spirit-empowered movement in Acts 2 means is that it gives the early church and us purity. Purity. Some of the, the kind of giveaway is in the name of the Holy Spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit, Right? And if you read Galatians chapter five, what we're going to see is that Paul's going to say, hey, hey, don't live by the law anymore, but, but rather be led by who? Led by the Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit that produces inside of his followers fruit of the Holy Spirit, like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. It's God not just delivering us from, our, from the, the penalty of sin, but also through the power of the Spirit, God is starting to deliver us from the power of sin. And thankfully, there's coming a day where he's going to deliver us fully from the presence of sin. What's happening here in Acts 2 is is that God the Spirit, he's giving them power, but he's also giving them purity. He's making them more like Jesus. So that as they go into the world, they're not just going with the gospel on their lips, but they're going with, with the Spirit of God residing in them, and their lives are being transformed. Their lives are being changed to look more like Jesus. And people all over their city and all over eventually the known world at the time are drawn to Jesus and become followers of Jesus. 
There are so many beautiful things that happen at Pentecost, but what it means for us is that Jesus has baptized his church with the Holy Spirit. And you and I now, we are invited in, not just to receive the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but to receive the Spirit of God in fullness that he freely gives his church. So let me wrap this up and bring this to a close. And the, the, the big thing as I read Acts 2, the big thing that burns inside of my heart is this reality that you and I, we need more of the Holy Spirit, don't we? We need more of the Holy Spirit. Man, I, I have friends that are far from God. And I feel like, man, what, what, how am I supposed to do this? Like they have objections and skepticism. How am I supposed to articulate the gospel in a way that, that their heart would go from death to life? And, and the answer is I can't do that, but God, the spirit through me, he can, because that's what he does best is take dead hearts and make them alive. There are people around me that are sick and suffering and, and, and broken. It's like, how can I engage this? How can we love and serve? And it's like, I can't in my own strength, but through the power of the Spirit, what, what God has done for us, he, he can do it. And he's eager to use us. He, he's filled us with the Spirit so that we could follow Jesus on mission so that many, 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 many people would come to know Jesus. John Stott, he says these words, He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. And Acts 2, Acts 2 is the good news of Jesus coming to the church with love and mercy and grace and pouring out his spirit so that you and I could be his witnesses in our world. So today, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, that's what you're being invited into. Today, if you are here and you don't know Jesus, this is what God is up to. He's, he's pursuing, he's calling, he's bringing you to himself, not to, to give you a list of rules and things that you've got to do to earn his love and acceptance. No, Jesus has done the work for you. He went to the cross in your place. He died for your sin. He rose from the dead. Jesus is alive right now. He's inviting you to himself. He's eager to forgive your sin. He's eager to reconcile you back to God and he's eager to infuse you with new life through the power of his Holy Spirit. So if you are hungry for him, if you need him, then come, he will not turn you away.